1: This week on Truth and Movies, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are stranded in Robert Eggers' *The Lighthouse*. Tell me,
0: what's a timberman want with being a wiki? Just
2: looking to earn a living, just like any man. Starting new, on the run.
1: Clint Eastwood returns with a true life drama, *Richard Jewell*. Richard,
0: you're a national hero now. Thank you, sir. But I was just doing my job. you always look at the guy who found the bomb just like you always look at the guy who found the body
1: and in film club we're going back to the psychedelic 70s for the czech gem valerie and her week of wonders all coming up in truth and movies a little white lies podcast hello there movie truthers it's Michael Leader here, back from Rotterdam. Check out our specials, if you haven't already. Sitting across today from Adam Woodward. Hi. And Sophie Monks-Kaufman. Hello. Hello, gang. How are we doing?
2: Well, we missed David because he was scheduled to be on the podcast, but instead he's having surgery on his finger this morning.
1: Yeah, it's swift recovery, David. Although listeners can hear lots of him talking about films in Rotterdam if they do go back and listen to those specials.
2: Indeed. If you're craving that David Jenkins fix... There's a cure for that.
1: <laughs> Sophie, how have you been? It's been a while. Any news from you?
2: Oh, yes. Thank you for asking, Michael. Um, so I'm quite exaunt- excited and a little daunted, I nearly combined the words and said exaunted, to be uh, starting to co-chair with Nikki Bown, who's contributing editor of Screen and a wonderful woman. We're co-chairing Time's Up UK Critics. So we had our first meeting, starting small, but we're very open to um, female critics who feel that they need support or they have grievances to air about navigating this profoundly unregulated industry. Uh, any female critics listening who you know feel like this could be of benefit, do get in touch with me via Truth and Movies, and your you, your correspondence will be forwarded on to me.
1: I guess well we can list list the ways to get in touch with us. That's Truth and Movies at tclunna or at Truth and on Twitter there is the comment section at exactly slash podcast as well if you want to learn more about Time's Up UK's critics branch Thank you Sophie, that's quite exciting important it work. Is.
2: yeah, gender equality we're, we're, we're going to try it's going to take a little while but we we want to try
1: So we're, well, we're going to start with perhaps uh, not a very equal film gender wise, Two Men on an Island Ooh, Burn
2: it down
1: <laughs> But the first new release this week is The Lighthouse From Robert Eggers, the filmmaker behind the recent horror hit *The Witch*, comes this hypnotic tale of two lighthouse keepers on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s.
0: Tell me, what's a timberman want with being a wiki? Just looking earn a living, just like
2: any man. Starting new. On the run.
1: Keeping secrets, are you? No, sir. Some delightful accents on display in this film. So, Adam, this film premiered at Cannes last May. That's where I saw it and yeah, reviewed was, it for the I site. Yeah, I was there too. Um, were you excited to see the new one from Eggers?
3: Yeah, very much so. I think The Witch was one of those films that I felt like oh this is a nice calling card movie um maybe for my taste lent a little bit too much into the into the genre trappings that that we expect from that kind of um that kind of horror and and actually i think it's there seems to be a bit of a revival in those kind of folk horror tinged mm-hmm. um um films of late independent films of late but this one definitely excited i uh, just for some reason we we were in can obviously um you know staying together and and got up very early to go and see this and it was on in one of the sidebar programs for the main festival. And it it just felt like a a film that was going to be an event and that we had to be there for. Um, I remember queuing up really early and and there just being a bit of a buzz and Mm -hmm. and then sitting down inside the theatre before it started and there being a real like electricity and energy in the room. And, you know, I've had that before and the film ends up kind of being a bit of a a, a damp squib and a letdown. And and this is very much not that. I mean, one of the most thrilling, I think, first viewings I've had in recent memory... Um, I've seen the film a couple of times since and yeah it just gets better and better I think with each viewing for me Um, in fact highlight probably of of that whole festival for me going back to Cannes quickly was the three of them, Robert Eggers director, um, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe all coming on stage after the screening and and to a rapturous reception and uh, just a kind of mischievousness amongst them and and you could kind of sense as well this, this strange tension between them I think Willem Dafoe cracked a joke about essentially wanting to like punch Robert and
2: uh Is it not because the filming conditions were horrific?
3: Well, this is the thing. I think they that that is clearly evident when you watch the film. You know, there it's it's very remote location. Um and the actors I mean physically what they're doing is is very intense work. I mean, committed I think doesn't even even really begin to cover it in, in, in this case. But it is a very physical film, you know, and it feels like however much you want to workshop it and how much rehearsal you do for this kind of thing I think and and, and actually having spoken to Willem Defoe for this specifically and, and his approach to the character and, and the way they filmed it was very different to Robert Pattinson's I don't think you can substitute or you, or you can really prepare too much as an actor for, 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 a, for a film like this I think once the camera's rolling you've got to just give it your all and, and, and go for it I don't think you can really do too much rehearsal so I, I get that and you know I think they filmed it over quite quite a few weeks as well. You know, it's it's not a particularly long movie. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like there's. I mean, there's obviously only one location. It feels very economic in in it, the way it's the story is actually told. But you can imagine them being on set in very grueling conditions, and you know, a few weeks on set probably did feel like quite a few months. And you know, it's quite it's quite fitting because the film in some ways. The, the way I kind of interpret it, at least, is supposed to convey this this feeling of them entering purgatory. And that's kind of something that Rob Eggers has spoken about before a little bit as well. And I, there's a lot of stuff he's drawing on here, we should say. I mean, obviously, there's there's the obvious kind of filmic references and connections to, to things like Ingmar Bergman and mm-hmm. going back a bit further, Carl Dreher and some, some kind of old old film noiry stuff. But I think as well, literary references. I mean, he's spoken about Herman Melville... Mm-hmm. Um, and and even like painting and photography and poetry and there's, there's so much going on I think that's the strongest aspect of the film that it doesn't necessarily remind you of just one thing or you can't say oh yeah he's just doing that or he's referencing that I think there's so much that he's drawing on and so much therefore that an audience can take away from it
1: and there's been a coy quality to how this film has been marketed. Of course when we saw it back so at Cannes, part of the delight of Discovery was the fact that I think we'd seen one still of Defoe and Pattinson looking gloomy on an island and we knew it was, so we knew it was in black and white we knew it was shot in this sort of, sort of square, square boxy ratio but didn't know much more than that Could we try and maybe at least tease is this a horror film? Is it just a character drama? Is it something as metaphorical and allegorical as you say Adam? Sophie what do you think?
2: It's one of those films that's, is this really happening, or are we watching one man's descent into madness? It, it, events, f- because of because of the stylistic choices, it's very heightened from the beginning, and it, it only goes higher from mm-hmm. there. So it, there really becomes a point where you're not exactly sure whose point of view you're seeing, and whether it bears any relation to true events, or if any of the film bears any relation to anything that's ever happened. I'd say it's a it's a real curio in terms of genre and it's its greatest strengths are definitely that it's this film is is two incredible actors going at it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's if you're a fan of pattinson or or Defoe or both it it's just an opportunity to watch them absolutely go at it in in ways that I do not want to spoil but once seen. Uh, really um, hard to shift from your mind, even if you want them to go there, they're there um, so it's very image-driven filmmaking I think that's what he does, because The Witch there was his debut, The Witch, when it came out, there was a big debate about whether it was horror or no, cause it's not, scary it wasn't scary but to my mind, that film and this film are both very tableau, image-driven films, mm-hmm. not so much about getting that reaction out of the audience, and so much as crafting certain images that are very painterly. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it's quite hard to define it on a usual film genre level because it's, it's kind of not playing by those rules. And
1: and even talking about it in more simplistic terms, it it's very funny at times oh, as funny. well. Well,
2: that's because Will- Willem Dafoe is a comic genius and I think Pattinson might be following on his heels in that respect. They're very good at that deadpan delivery. Mm-hmm. D- Dafoe's character is terrifying, but also... Um, he's got this really childlike, gleeful grin that he can roll out and undercut a moment and he's playing you with his capacity to be entertaining.
1: Yeah. So, Adam, talking about The Craft for a second, you, you interviewed Robert Eggers later in the year, did you?
3: Yeah, actually, the uh, the film was in uh, the London Film Festival mm. programme and he was over for that. Um, I'd actually interviewed him for, for The Witch before and it was fascinating. I mean, it was only a couple of years, I, I guess, between the two mm. films and his whole manner when I spoke to him for The Witch seemed... He he did seem kind of very green and and obviously was maybe new to to being on this like press junket scene, but it seemed a little bit like he was lacking maybe confident. I mean, he just made this amazing film which was getting a lot of um, acclaim, but it didn't seem particularly confident and 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 sometimes that's a you know you, you meet young directors who are very kind of cocksure and egotistical and um, but seeing him again and me and and speaking to him for for this film, he was so relaxed and so it just exuded this feeling of like. Not, not necessarily I've made it but like I'm exactly where I want to be and and you know and a little bit of maybe pride in the work as well but yeah the thing I wanted to to pick up on and one of the fascinating things I think he spoke about was um, just the construction of the set because like another um, big film at Cannes last year Parasite Bong Joon-ho's Parasite um, the main set of the film was completely constructed from scratch mm-hmm. Which I think is something if you if you watch the film, if you're going into it and, and didn't know that, you, you I don't think you'd be able to tell. It just looks like they've managed to find this amazing, um, old nineteenth century lighthouse on a on a sort of rock somewhere in Nova Scotia. But in fact, you know, they they actually scouted this location and built the whole thing out of out of wood, I think quite cheaply and quite quickly. Um, local community all, all sort of chipped in. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's quite an amazing feat of just craft and engineering as well. Um, mm-hmm. So we're going to just hear Rob just explaining a bit more about that now.
4: I wanted to build the entire lighthouse station from soup to nuts, as no one says in it, <laughs> um, because I wanted like to have absolute control mm-hmm. over everything. Mm-hmm. But it, this was an expensive black and white movie. So I we needed to be responsible and try to find a lighthouse that would work. But there was no lighthouse that had the right look and feel uh, and location that that was accessible. Right. And part of making a movie is having like good road access. Yeah, yeah. And you can't. I mean, I never, I never thought we could uh, do this, but you can't shoot a movie on an island practically. And basically, every lighthouse that worked for us was like on a rock very remote yeah so so um so this was a peninsula that could be with with great road access and terrible weather Mm -hmm. uh that could be made to look like an island quite easily where we built you know our 70 foot working lighthouse tower and uh everything else
1: so that's director Robert Eggers talking to Adam about the construction of the lighthouse itself of course we've talked a lot about the two central roles here Rob and Willem they do have support, a supporting cast, not a human supporting cast, of course. Robert Eggers has form with the witch, with Black Philip the goat. This one he has some seagulls. Sophie, were the seagulls a highlight for you? Can you explain what their, their quality is that they bring to the film?
2: They're antagonists. That's all I'll say. <laughs> they are an antagonising force within this setting.
1: Do you think they'll be the breakout stars of this film as Black Philip was for the witch?
2: I should hope so. I do know that Hannah Woodhead of this parish for Halloween, she went as a character from the lighthouse and sourced her own seagull in order to. A real seagull? Uh, Accounts vary. (laughs) I'm going to let the mystery live. Did Hannah Woodhead take a real seagull to a Halloween party? Who's to say?
1: Did you ask Agas about the seagulls, Adam?
3: I did, and and partly because, uh, you know, leading on from talking about the location, I think it's fascinating that you would kind of expect seagulls to be there, and that that in some ways they are included in the film, incidentally. Um, But they also do play, as you you said, quite a kind of major... I mean, they are... As much as Willem's character is an antagonist as well, I think in the background, this idea that Rob's character is constantly being tormented and when, when, you know, when he's not being um, verbally bludgeoned by Willem Dafoe, he's got these kind of seagulls crawling away at him. And uh, yeah, I did ask Rob, Robert
1: Eggers about that as well. well. Let's hear that clip now then.
4: What was difficult about that was that my brother and I were stupid and we didn't research seagulls before we wrote them into the script. Mm-hmm. That being said, like, how are you supposed to do... A nautical folklore movie, and not have seagulls in your movie. Like and you just kind of have to do that mm-hmm. uh, if it's if it's the, the North Atlantic. Mm-hmm. But going like you know into production, we didn't have a plan. Like it was really terrifying. So, so what and, did you need to know about them? Then, to, to well, we needed to, we hadn't we had found trained seagulls. Oh, you know, and uh, and finally there's there's three seagulls out of the UK, so hometown birds. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and they were amazing. They were so intelligent, and uh, they were once we found them, they were great.
1: Robert Eggers there talking about the seagulls in the lighthouse. Of course, we could talk for ages about this film, but really, it is one I think people should experience as as fresh as possible. But Adam, what scores would you give this film?
3: I think a um, four going in, as mu- as much as I said, uh, which wasn't necessarily one that lived long in the memory for me. I, I was definitely excited to see. What he was going to come up with, and 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 he massively delivers. I think this is like a a, a really really impressive, not just an impressive piece of cast, uh, casting and, and craft, but the way he's working with these these two actors, just at the top of their game. There's just so much to take away from this, and so much rewatch value as well. I think I've seen it like three times mm. now, and it just keeps getting better. So um, probably a four for enjoyment, and a five in retrospect. Oh,
1: fantastic, Sophie.
2: Um, a little bit different to my colleague adam and anticipation for i i wasn't at Cannes i heard the hype not even from twitter just i heard people screaming all the way from france so anticipation for enjoyment three i was a bit underwhelmed i again for me this is a real curiosity but i didn't find it particularly resonant and then i rewatched it again ahead of the podcast and it, again it, it didn't do very much for me so in retrospect two.
1: Oh, okay. It's fours down the line for me. Um, even though I wasn't the biggest fan of The Witch, I thought he was such a, a great new talent on the scene. And this was, I think, going toe-to-toe with Parasite for my favourite film of Cannes last year, and maybe even the year of 2019. I haven't had a chance to re-watch it, and I can't wait to watch it again, because one thing we haven't said is the soundscape. Oh, un- underna- the sound underneath the underneath the imagery. The
2: that is, that's the thing that actually haunts me even more than the image. Mm-hmm. Every now and then I just hear this blaring low horn.
1: Yeah, so, so that's what I'm excited to experience again maybe even if they do some 4DX screening somewhere, maybe have a seagull in your face, that would be amazing. Odeon if you want to bill me for that for that idea, uh, you can contact me these your channels. But that was the lighthouse in cinemas this week. Up next we have Clint Eastwood's latest film, Richard Jewell. Directed by Clint Eastwood and based on true events, Richard Jewell stars Paul Walter Hauser as the security guard who discovered the device at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics bombing. His actions make him a hero and an instant celebrity, but within days Richard becomes the FBI's number one suspect.
0: Richard, you're a national hero now. Thank you, sir. But I was just doing my job. You always look at the guy who found the bomb just like you always look at the guy who found the body
2: jewel fits the profile of the lone bomber a frustrated white man who is a police wannabe who seeks to become a hero we're running
0: it you're a suspect you don't talk i talk say i don't talk this might be the only way to clear your name
1: a clip from the trailer for richard jewel there sophie I wasn't familiar with this story behind. Were you?
2: I was not. No, absolutely went in blind. Mm-hmm. And
1: but what, what did you think of it?
2: This film has layers. It has themes. It has performances. It has much to chew over. It is very enjoyable, even though there are elements of it, particularly one element of it that um, I think, as I said on Twitter, needs to be fired into the sun. It still manages to be to withstand this and really be quite an extraordinary piece of filmmaking. Where do we start? Where should we start, Michael? Let's start
1: with, uh, with Paul Walter Hauser, who I'd only seen in I, Tonya. He plays one of the sort of losery uh, hangers-on, doesn't he, in, in that film. And in this, he's front and centre. He is the title character, and he's a revelation, isn't he? What Could you describe his, his qualities of the sure. character? Yeah,
2: okay. So his character, Richard Jewell, is a wannabe law enforcement. He, he just loves law and order, and um, he's not a police officer, but he has roles like security and on-campus police officer and stuff that is just slightly slightly below the true official rank that he craves. Um, and he plays it really earnestly, because you're kind of used to depictions of characters like this as the villains, I guess. But he just genuinely seems to, he finds this role to be a real calling but he has certain idiosyncratic qualities uh, and habits that uh, have, have, despite his na- his natural predisposition for law and order, that make it difficult for him to progress. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think that Paul Walthouser's performance, he's he's very calm, you know? he he there's A lot of things happen to him in this film, S- stuff that really it would take your psychological makeup for a ride and he plays it real calm uh, which is very compelling. Instead of going big he goes small and he's sweet in places he's very hard to pin down. Um, he keeps you guessing and keeps you watching to see how he's going to react to these life altering events that unfold in the course of the film.
1: And he acts as an eye of the storm stylistically for this film because some other performances are quite big, quite showy quite melodramatic in their own ways and that's not something I was quite expecting from God Clint as some people call him, Clint Eastwood. This is on paper at least very similar to the film however two or three films ago, Sully in which Tom Hanks plays the pilot that lands an aircraft on the Hudson Hudson and is then scrutinised afterwards and similarly here a man doing his job is scrutinised but it's almost played a bit more as a satire on the media maybe
2: Right and also the the reason why institutions are failing us. The public hunger as fuelled by the FBI and the media circus to find someone to be obsessed with and to vilify and all of that falls upon Paul Walter Hauser. So he his quiet performance shows up the forces that Clint, God, Clint, is seeking to um, question really well.
1: Adam, are you a paid up member of the, the Clint crew?
3: Oh, big time, yeah. I mean... I think he is. it's incredible that he's not only still making films but churning out, what is it, kind of one a year at at this kind of quality as well. Um, And what he's doing, I mean, people I think take a bit of a dislike to him because he is quite openly, I think, right-wing and and there is a lot of right-wing politics in this film. But I think what he, you know, he's coming at it from a point of view of he's someone who loves the law but with a little L you know and what he's really getting at here is law with a big L and the institutions like the government as well I mean he Clint basically like hates the government right can Um, I just
2: quote this amazing moment in the film uh, because this is the character who's guiding us through really believes in the government in law and order uh, and so even when these are the forces that are seeking to crush the life from him, he still is compliant, calling them sir, very respectful and obliging. And there's an amazing line of dialogue between him and Sam Rockwell's character, Watson Bryant, who we need to get to, because Sam Rockwell is so good in this. But so Paul Waterhouse's character, the titular Richard Jew, is saying, oh, but um, that's government in there. And Watson says, no that's not government that's three pricks who work for the government and I feel like that is the film's MO yes. no, like no Th- these institutions will not protect you because they're just full of pricks
3: I think that's the thing is is Clint's you know rich vein of that he's been on recently has mostly been centred around the idea of like men doing their jobs mm-hmm. right and, and you know essentially what he's scrutinising here is not the, the men the individuals that are just doing their jobs right it's the bigger picture it's the, it's the bigger system and the basic basically the way things are set up to screw over people like Richard Jewell um, and the, the, media, titular, Richard the Jewell. titular Richard Jewell the media being extremely complicit in this um, I think my my only reservation with this film is that I think w- Walter House's performance is so perfectly drawn and performed and I think actually really um, brilliantly written for him as well I mean it'd be so easy to make him into quite a simplistic buffoon or to make him overly sympathetic even and overly childlike but there are there are things in this film where you're like hmm this guy is making bad decisions <laughs> that's and, a mild way to yeah and, and 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 you know he is he is culpable for to some extent for his actions and and reactions and and just the way he is i mean he's not someone who is who is presented to be kind of stupid mm-hmm. um but it's a very sensitive performance. It's a wonderful scene later on where he's kind of cry, eating a donut in, in a diner. And it's like really beautiful. Again, could be played more for last than anything else. But it's just a really sweet, re- really tender moment that we... Uh, maybe a side of Clint that we don't see all that often. But then on, on the flip side of that, you've got these quite kind of big performances from John Hamm and Olivia Wilde, who we'll get onto in a moment, I suspect. But th- those characters for me feel um, like... And I understand that it is, it is obviously much more of a, a character study and, and focused in on um, Richard Jewell, but these characters for me for me feel a little bit more thinly drawn and almost quite clichéd in, in, in the worst possible way.
1: Well, what surprised me watching the film was not knowing the story. I didn't know if there were any twists or turns or, or, or kinks in the tale. But really what this is is almost a modern-day Frank Capra, Mr. Smith goes to Washington yeah. sort of film, and he is a classic innocent protagonist but a hapless stooge i mean if you want to throw all the metaphors and allegories onto the characters you want about him representing america representing a certain sort of decency that may be lost in the modern media and in you know political age or whatever but then that does give the scripts license to maybe mm. sketch the other characters a bit more thinly
3: I, I think a lesser filmmaker as well would tackle this from the point of view of Trying to inject a bit more ambiguity and to make you, to string you along and think, oh, did he do it or not? Mm-hmm. And I, I really love the fact that it establishes very early on, not just through you know, setting this guy up to be quite a kind of sweet-natured and, and essentially harmless um, stooge. But it basically it shows you quite clearly and explicitly that he is innocent. Um, but, and that allows then Clint and the film to go off in this direction of, as we've, as, as we've discussed, scrutinising the media and government.
2: But he doesn't really spread that nuance around. As Michael's was saying, hmm. John Hamm's FBI character, I hissed. <laughs> I... I adore John Hamm. I was very excited to see a John Hamm film, but I hated him by the end of the film. He's a real villain. Um, he's
1: so, so good at those roles. Oh, he's as well.
2: really good. There's a line in it that like I, I was sitting beside Michael and I felt his whole body tense up and then I think the hands got rubbed with glee anyways it was like, he's, he's, re- he's really good he's really good at playing the villain but it's, again it's not really a nuanced character there, there is Olivia a great... Wilde as a journalist is not a nuanced character and we will get more well, into that
1: why, why don't we deconstruct that because mm. you know Clint Eastwood is, you know, he's, he's very much on record as being a guy who doesn't really rehearse or workshop or take many takes and so that means that sometimes actors just follow their impulses and instincts and I think that's a role maybe that is very first thought on Olivia Wilde's part and it's quite a wild performance, right? Could you explain what she's doing and maybe where she falls short?
2: Um, So she plays the journalist who has a real hand in ruining Richard Jewell's life by publishing a story that she has gotten by sleeping with a source. And this character is based on a real person and there's been a lot of... There's been mild internet controversy just setting the record straight, being like, no, this woman did not sleep with a source to get her story. So just, I think, even on paper, as written... It's not a very credible character depiction and doesn't try to be. And the performance just makes it 10 times worse because it's kind of hysterical. She, everything is, uh, she doesn't walk into a newsroom. She like struts into a newsroom. She doesn't move her head to the side. She throws her head around 180 degrees. Everything is huge. Um, and I I think. It's just really especially jarring considering that we have these minutely detailed central performances that are very hyper-realistic. But I do think, I think, I think it's not a great performance from Olivia Wilde, but I also think it shows that Clint is not particularly interested in a depiction of the media. The scenes in the newsroom are like, where did you get that from, Clint? Is this how you think that newspapers run? There's no real curiosity there. He just wants to show them as having a hand in destroying this man's life
1: but he is more interested in the sam rockwell character who is the the one good attorney out there who's burned all his bridges and you know is is outside of the system and he decides to stand by this guy who used to buy him snickers when he was the mailroom guy
2: oh i want to stand up and salute sam rockwell and he's such a great actor and he there have been some iffy choices of late in his career and it just worms every single inch of my body sorry if that was too erotic to know that he's made a good choice and this is a great pie of his talents uh he yeah so he he's he's Watson Bryant he comes to be in Richard Jewell's corner with his lovely assistant who's also quite canny Nadia um he's the cavalry he's the one-man cavalry and he he showcases Rockwell's capacity to listen a lot of the performance is just reacting to Richard Jewell so we've got a uh, Buddy for the titular Richard Jew and all that he's going mm-hmm. through, and it reacting and really to be a sounding board and to 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 be the guy in his corner that he needs. But it's not remotely one note. He via his reactions, he funnels all that stuff that Adam was talking about. As in, not all of Richard Jewel's character is gleaming, and he has made some weird decisions, and he has too many guns in his house. And and he, so Sam Rockwell is kind of the intermediary between Richard mm-hmm. uh, between Richard Jew and the audience, and could not have a better intermediary
1: and it showcases sam rockwell's capacity to wear shorts and polo shirts and somehow rock that on ensemble oh
2: yeah like yeah dressed down lawyer in cargo shorts so that's your thing yeah that's my thing
1: but uh it's richard julia thing what scores would you give it sophie
2: um yeah I, i'm unlike adam who i know grew up which clint eastwood movies with his dad I, I don't really have a special place in my heart for him um so i'd say anticipation three was really really impressed it, despite all the flaws that i've i've articulated just now i i, I think it's a really impressive film um love it mm-hmm. so for and then in retrospect for
1: mm. adam i think
3: yeah fours, straight fours for me love clint love this love paul wathouser there's He's a so really good. great interview that um Hannah did with him on Lies dot com right now um fascinating they talk about um it's quite a throwaway thing from um, the, the article, the Vanity Fair article, which th- this film was based on. But there's a bit where Marie Brenner, who who wrote the piece, talks about how, I think it's Jay Leno or someone makes um, an observation that Richard Jewell looks a lot like Sean Eckhart, who is the character that Paul Waterhouser plays in Itonia. So there's this weird doppelganger hmm. thing going on. And they talk about that a bit. But besides that, it's a really fascinating interview. He's talking about kind of working with Clint and actually paints a really interesting picture of... Um, you know the kind of guy Clint is on set and, and and what it was like working for him. So do do go and read that.
1: Yeah, no, I I enjoyed it as well. I don't always catch Clint's films that they, they, they come out so frequently, and often don't get very wide releases. I haven't caught The Mule yet, which I heard from some, some quarters was one to see. The, the Mule is pretty good.
3: I think I think this Richard Jewell, the 1517 to Paris, and um, Sully Mm -hmm. as his his other kind of recent ones are are all i put them all in the same Mm
1: -hmm. kind of category and and they're all definitely worth seeking out that sounds like a good weekend at the movies if you can get it but I'll say 344 for Richard Jewell for me I enjoyed this one
2: snap we did the same scores
1: So that's The Lighthouse and Richard Jewell. Before we run on to Film Club, this is a stacked week for new releases. We couldn't cover everything, but Sophie, I know you wanted to give a particular shout-out to one of the new releases this week. Um,
2: There's this absolutely wonderful director called Mario Heller. First film was Diary of a Teenage Girl. Second film was Can You Ever Forgive Me? Her third film is out, and it's called A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, starring Tom Hanks as the beloved American's children's entertainer, Mr. Rogers. It's interesting that we're talking about a jewel, which was based on an article by a journalist. Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is also based on an article by a journalist. Um, this man called Tom Juno, who was very at a time in his life when he was feeling very cynical and was more inclined to investigative journalism, was assigned the task of going to profile Mister Rogers. It is really beautiful. It's a really cathartic film, but it's also a film about trauma and like what you do with that and how unresolved issues play out in your uh, current relationships so it's got all this stuff in it as well as these amazing performances Matthew Rees plays the journalist and he's in a very talented Welsh actor who's since made it in America so I really want to give a shout out to A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood
1: thank you Sophie for that recommendation for A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood up next we're going into Film Club which this week is 1970's Valerie and her Week of Wonders Valerie and her week of wonders mixes horror, fairy tale, surrealism and Freudian symbolism to depict the fantastical world inhabited by a young girl on the threshold of adulthood. Haunting and dreamlike, beguiling and magical, the film is a work of pure imagination and has become a cult classic. very haunting and beguiling clip there from Valerie and her week of wonders so Adam you've not seen this film yet maybe Sophie and I can convince you whether yeah, she no, sees I've, I've, not I've,
3: uh, I've subbed in for David this week but th- I must say this does sound
1: extremely my bag okay I can lend you the blu-ray <laughs> later on Sophie had you no, do you know anything about this film before we put it in the DVD player?
2: No. I, I'd heard the title and that was about it.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd seen this in a cinema years ago put on by two blokes who worked in the Gosh comic shop in London. They had a screening series called Black Decagon and it was about like late night movies, cult movies and they showed this at the Genesis Cinema in, in East London and um, yeah, strange film.
2: What were your recollections at that time?
1: Completely hazy because this, this film is like 77 minutes long. Mm. It's there is a vague narrative about this girl at the beginning of the film experiencing her period and then it's this week a- after um, her first period and the, the encroaching adulthood and then there are, the, there are these strange figures and worlds that she enters and it's a lot of imagery and symbolism mm-hmm. It's funny we were talking about this the week after we talked about the Holy Mountain, the Yodorovsky film very, very similar uh, world we're playing in so I actually could remember very little from that late-night screening years ago and re-watching it now, I'm equally baffled and and, and mystified by it all. What, what did you make of it?
2: Baffled and mystified sums it up nicely, I would say. There's not much narrative there to guide you through. Mm-hmm. So, as you said loosely, it's a take on Alice in Wonderland and Red Riding Hood. But I really struggled with this film. I really struggled to know what it was I was experiencing and it wasn't pleasurable I do you know I like image driven stuff but I think because these images were often quite nightmarish quite haunting there's a a lot of nudity and sexual situations that they're just taking place in like a fairly chaotic environment which I guess stresses me out who wants to be naked in a chaotic environment not I um, so it, the, the stu- yeah, so there's, there's not much of a narrative, and the the images are carcophonous c- in a sense. So it's I just found it quite hard, and I found that my brain threw up, throwing up much resistance to what I was watching.
1: And no images stuck with you, or sequences that?
2: I mean, they stuck with me. I would like, <laughs> uh, you know, there's. A, I mean, there's so many. So the one, I guess, the one that's in my mind is quite early on in the film when. Valerie looks out the window and there's a figure in a black cape with a mouse mask that he's holding up with his hand and he tilts the mouse mask to the side and you see this Nosferatu figure and then he puts the mouse mask back and then he t- tilts it back again and then there's a guy who looks like Eric Stoltz. There's some guy who looks like Eric Stoltz and you're like, who is it behind the mask? Is it Eric Stoltz or is it Nosferatu?
1: And that's, that's almost a, th- a thread throughout the film. Many characters swap faces and you know, th- this Nosferati figure who's called Weasel in the subtitles, is, is he Valerie's grandfather? I hope not. Or father? Or who is he? And they're all swapping identities and lots of competing narratives here. It's a very strange film. And I think it lives in that surreal hinterland between genres where you can find Horror filmmakers, fairy tale, like you know, uh, people who who make um, postmodern fairy tales. They they're inspired by this film. I think Angela Carter. Well, it, is, it's interesting it's, that
2: you make the Angela Carter reference because mm-hmm. I adore Angela Carter. But the thing that I like to get from my surrealism mm-hmm. that I didn't get in this is a sense of meaning, or even if it's just a very broad metaphorical meaning. I'm sorry, but I was a young girl who once got my period and it did not feel like that.
1: <laughs> well you you went in the in this fairy tale world I imagine <laughs> no. back then. But it's but also I think the most interesting impact this film has had is that it's a a huge film in the, the world of, of music. The, the the score has this strange sort of folky uh, avant-garde score and that's been an influence on bands from the 90s like Espers and Broadcast who would be very much working in that similar genre. There's a there's a, a project where people are rescoring this film with, with, with new scores. It's I did not know that. Weird that films like that may have a huge reputation outside of the world of film nuts. But even within... The history of Czechoslovakian cinema that this is quite fascinating. We should say we're covering this because a new Blu-ray with the restoration has just been put out by second run DVD who are an incredible line that often specialise in European cinema of the mid-20th century and there's an essay in there that contextualises this as the last film of the Czech new wave. It It comes 1970 just as these filmmakers were being suppressed, locked down, or exiled out of the country. So you may have seen Vera Chitilova's Daisy, Daisies, yes. uh, which has a... Would you, how do you compare that to yes, this film?
2: Yes, I think that's an apt comparison, and actually you making that comparison is making me feel a little bit more open-minded as regards Valerie and her Week of Wonders, because I know that with Daisies, a lot of, a lot of the energy behind that is, you know, railing against the forces of censorship and conservatism, and so I think maybe if you see this film as this eruptive expression of something that countercultural, then maybe it makes more sense in context context than something ripped out of context and you watch it and you can't quite see what it is rooted in why it has been made what you know what in tarnation is going on
1: (laughs) adam does this sound like your jam now that we've talked about a a bit more oh yeah more and more so and the more you talk about it or well, maybe we, you could borrow it, watch it, and send in a tweet for us to read it on the next episode. Because, mm-hmm. listeners, if you have uh, watched or enjoyed any of the films we talked about this week, including Valerie and her Week of Wonders, do let us know. And uh, we can always read them out at the beginning of the next episode. You can get in touch with us at Truth and Movies on Twitter, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com via email, or at the comments section at slash podcast. Next week, we have Birds of Prey, the new DC movie. We have the hotly tipped. Parasite finally making its UK release after years and years and years of hype and so because that's Bong Joon-ho's big breakout movie at least where the Oscars are concerned we're going to go for Film Club back to one of his previous films, the film Snowpiercer which didn't actually get the UK theatrical release but is now available on a variety of streaming services Let us know what you think about those films or any of the films at usual channels Sophie, Adam, thank you so much for joining me this week. I'm Michael Leader and as always this has been a 7 Digital Production